I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey there, this is Christian Swain from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Rock and Roll Archaeology? What's that you say? We are a podcast network dedicated to digging deep into the amazing music that exploded out of the second half of the 20th century. We believe the music, culture, and technology wove together, and it is an important story of history as, say, the Italian Renaissance or the Impressionists of Paris. We have six shows, all with a different side of this incredible time. Rock Talk with myself and host Peter Ferrioli. Real Rock, and that's R-E-E-L, hosted by Andy King. Vinyl Snob with the legendary Dave Whitaker. Rock and Roll Librarian with the headmistress herself, Shelley Sorensen. Deeper Digs in Rock, where I interview famous rock and roll personalities and the people who scribed the times and events. And finally, our full telling of the history of rock and roll, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, which started it all. Find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So let's get back to Between the Sheets of Rock and Roll with Shanty and Lynx and Muses and Stuff. Oh, 
Hi. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy that I'm here and that you're better. Guys, we're back. Yeah. We're back. I don't know if you guys know this, but we have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And we took a little break for the, you know, winter holidays. And I think we planned on reconvening last week to get an episode out. And then I fell ill. Yeah. But it was a speedy recovery. I was worried that you were going to be out of commission for a while. Yeah, it was a solid 10 days, I'd (sighs) say. It was rough. It was rough. Couple trips to the hospital, to the doctor, but guys, we're back in the saddle again. Yeah. The boys are back in town. <laughs> yeah. The ladies are. Yeah. Yeah. So, thanks for all the well wishes, and uh, thank you to you, Lynx, for posting all of those amazing birthday posts, because I think that really kept... Uh, let people know that we're still alive and we're still rocking. Awesome. Well, I love doing it. And yeah, we've reached over a thousand followers on Instagram, which I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, me too. We, cause we worked for those, you oh, know, yeah. I'm like, they are not robots. No. They are real people <laughs> that are liking and commenting. So yeah, it's nice to see more interaction happening lately. And yeah, yeah it's, it's good. It's better to have like a thousand and 12 engaged followers than like 12,000 robots. Bots. Yeah, absolutely. So that's wonderful. Yeah, that's great news. And uh, we got to finally exchange our Christmas gifts. We did. Gonna post them. They're amazing. Yeah, we actually at first when you handed me the little, uh, the little package, package, I thought maybe we got each other the same thing. But um, Lynx got me this wonderful pin, this button of John and Yoko in bed. Yes. So when they did their hair for peace. And <laughs> so I just had to think of a great spot to put that button. And I got an amazing mic with my initials. And uh, I'm just so A happy. necklace, not an actual microphone. Not a mic, yeah. But like sorry. a mic on a necklace. Uh, so I can wear it every day. Yeah. Carry Looks good on you. Thank you. Yeah, I had to put it on right away. It's funny because I was actually thinking like I have bracelets and stuff, but I don't really have a necklace that I like a go-to necklace and now I do. So thank you. Oh, thank you. So who are we doing today, Lynx? Who are we talking about? Well, this is actually special because my dad is in love with Pat Benatar Mm. and he's actually the one who like told me to do this episode. (laughs) He kind of was like, please do this next, do this next. So uh yeah i'm gonna do her next and uh this episode is dedicated to your dad yes actually my dad has been like i've been checking the website and there's been no (laughs) No news (laughs) since the last episode i'm like i know dad you know i've been sick well anyways daddy here it is for your dad as well then yeah we're back and um the next two episodes that we're putting out for january both of our subjects have birthdays in january so this works out nicely Yes, and Pat's birthday will be today, if you're listening. In real time. Yeah. That's what they call it in the podcast, lexicon. She was born January 10th, 1953. Uh, Her dad's side was Polish and new to America. Her mom was Dutch-Irish with a little bit of Native American uh, and had been here for centuries. Uh, They lived in Brooklyn until she was two, and then they moved to Lindenhurst on the south shore of Long Island. She describes life in Lindenhurst as an episode of happy days, complete with white picket fences and picturesque churches, while also being very blue collar. So 
It was a busy household. Her parents had one bedroom on the main floor. Her younger brother, Andy, and her had the other. Her grandma on her mom's side uh, lived there, and her mother's brother and sister. Uh, so Pat's aunt and uncle were still in their teens and lived with the family as well on Full the house. top floor. Yes. Her parents worked in factories. Her dad was a steel worker. Her mom in electronics. Uh, her grandma sort of took charge of the household maintenance. They worked long, hard hours, were constantly struggling to keep the family afloat. So they weren't always around, but they were still a very tight-knit, loving family. Uh, she says the financial stress was ever-present, though, and um, her parents loved each other, and, and she never saw them argue. Uh, they always kept a united front. They were kind, caring. They were strict without being disciplinarians. Uh, so it sounds like a kind of perfect American household, uh, except they had a unique family pet that I don't think most Americans have. Let me guess. Let me guess. Um, snail. No. Close? Bigger. Bigger. Um, donkey. Smaller. Um, pig. No. Uh, I don't know. Monkey! Yes! <laughs> um, oh, wait. And while we're at it, quick question. Yeah. So before, like, I've done Linda Ronstadt. So yes. a little bit of the, you know, like, branching off from the Muse groupie. Yes. And so this is, like, kind of same thing that you're doing with Pat A Benatar. little bit, but it's, there's a Muse here. Okay. So it's a little bit rock and roll s- singer, a little bit Muse. Great. So, yeah. Okay, bring it on. Uh, anyway, their capuchin monkey was named Jojo. I just had to add that in. Oh my god, it's like the Thor Birch movie. Yeah, Monkey Trouble. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hell of a movie. <laughs> I think we're like dating ourselves here. <laughs> um, so she loved being with the boys, though she never felt like a tomboy. Uh, she acted in a tomboy's fashion to get the best of both worlds. She loved hanging with the boys without being one. Um, I hear that. Yeah. Uh, but always from a young age was striving to kind of push the boundaries of what society tells us what girls should be like. Uh, she loved reading old Hollywood, listening to music. The first record she bought was The Twist. Um, and she really loved the diversity that uh, New York and Long Island had to offer and learning about different cultures and religions through the neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was definitely the neighborhood ham. She would entertain anyone who cared to listen. But it wasn't until fourth grade that music became a main focus for her. Uh, she was finally old enough to join the school choir. And when she did, a teacher spotted her talent right away. Pat's mom also had an amazing voice and sang opera when she was young. Uh, Pat says that she believed her mom probably would have had a career had she not gotten pregnant. Uh, her mom and dad really encouraged her talent and she began practicing on her free time and for Christmas uh, she was given a red transistor radio which became her dearest possession Uh, she said the radio opened up whole new worlds of music to me suddenly the stones and the Beatles were a turn of the dial away listening to those bands was mind-blowing for me they were nothing like I had been trained to sing and nothing that I'd studied so Pat found a musical mentor in her high school choir teacher, a woman named Georgia Rule. Uh, she had seen her sing at the si- sixth grade recital and immediately began finding 
uh, Pat scholarships and grants for vocal lessons because Pat and her family couldn't afford them. And so for the next six years, Pat had the best training that money could buy, basically, because of her mentor. Nice. Yeah. Um, Pat and her brother Andy were pretty shocked when her parents decided to divorce because they never fought in front of them and they really had no idea, like, what brought this on. Uh, What was even more confusing was that her parents got back together 30 days after the divorce and got remarried. Which sounds a lot like my Tay's parents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, To this day, she has no idea what happened there, but her parents remained married until her dad's passing in 2009. Uh, Since she was 14 at the time and in high school, Pat was already going through sort of all the major teen emotions and put all that energy and frustration into her music. Uh, She began getting interested in fashion and started wearing things that she calls provocative preppy. Hmm. Yeah. So basically rolling up her skirts past the regulation point and things like that. Uh, She really loved flirting and driving the boys wild. When I come back in a next life, I want to wear a uniform. Really? Yeah. Why? What's up with that? I don't know. I just have a thing for like schoolgirl uniforms. I'm like Cat Stevens. Yeah. (laughs) I think like... I think, like, on the surface, it's, like, it sounds sexy. But yeah. if you were wearing it, like, every day, you'd probably hate it. Okay, well, maybe I should just go to, like, Valley Just buy one. Yeah. Just wear it in my just own Just walk home. around. Yeah. <laughs> Someone asked, just make up a school name. I still Live look your young dream, enough for that. I'm going to. Today is the day. Okay. <laughs> Done. Um, so, yeah, she really loved flirting and stuff. And she did go out. Uh, but she learned early on that hard partying was not only bad for her music goals, but also just wasn't for her. She says that her high school experience can be summed up in two words, music and boys. Love it. Yes. Uh, she met Dennis Benatar when she was in 10th grade. So life changed for Pat in 10th grade after she met him. She fell in love as the way, you know, 16-year-olds do with pure abandon and just your brain kind of goes out the window Mm -hmm. uh they dated for the rest of high school and dennis enlisted in 1971 uh pat threw away her dream of attending juilliard by skipping the audition she worked so hard to earn because dennis asked her to stay with him and get married oh yes so when she told her mentor uh Georgia she Georgia burst into tears and tried in vain to convince her otherwise but her mind was set uh Pat enrolled at State University of New York while Dennis went away for basic training but she quit after a semester to work as a waitress to earn money for their wedding so she was not born with the name Benatar no okie doke didn't know that um her last name is very hard to pronounce and i forgot to write it down but it's in the book in front of you if you want to check it out okay sorry about that i should have done that um so dennis was sent to vietnam he was supposed to return the following year but instead was home after only three months because he was experiencing extremely bad ptsd instead of getting the right kind of therapy dennis like so many others did nothing well, uh, not quite nothing. He began to self-medicate. Oh. Uh, 
Yes. So Pat was so focused on their love that she really didn't take a moment to step back and see how how deeply things had changed between them. Uh, she finally mo- realized this moment, and she began as she began walking down the aisle uh, in July of seventy two. She says, I looked up and saw the man I thought I wanted to marry, and suddenly my brain said, run. But there I was, putting one foot in front of the other, walking down that aisle. No, 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 my brain kept screaming at me. The next thing I knew, I was reciting my vows. Then he was kissing the bride. I spent the next eight years in and out of a bad marriage. No way. Yeah. So, no surprise, there was really no honeymoon period for the Benatars. Uh, they were on and off from the get-go. She says they would split up at least once a year, usually for about six months at a time. Uh, they moved around a lot because he was still in the military. Pat would get jobs uh, waitressing, and she finally got a job working in a bank. And she basically forgot about music until one day some of her coworkers invited her to a Liza Minnelli concert. <laughs> She wasn't really a big fan, but she says watching Liza own the stage and sing with such a passion kind of reignited that spark. She hadn't sung at this point in like two years, uh, but she was so sure of herself and her talent that the very next day she handed in her notice at the bank and she went searching through the local paper for any sort of opportunity to sing. She found a place called the Roaring Twenties Cafe in Virginia where the wait staff doubled as performers. Hmm. So she applied, she got the job. She said, in 12 hours, I had changed my life. It's all it takes. Yeah. So while working there, she met a man named Phil. He played piano and started singing. She started singing with his band and local clubs and things like that. By 74, Pat was making about a grand a week in gigs, uh, some advertisement and jingle work, and the band had local radio hit as well. Then in 75, Pat spotted an article about open mic nights in New York City, and they were basically like all the rage back then, and uh, she thought, this is my opportunity. So her husband, Dennis, and her were still on and off, but he ended up following her to Manhattan, uh, they moved to East 81 Street, and uh, Dennis decided he wanted to be Pat's manager, which uh, Pat says it, basically there was just one paycheck, so it was all on her. Mm. Uh, Pat began singing every, anywhere she could, though, and one of the way, wing, one of the main reasons <laughs> she went back to perform uh, was because she heard about this club called Catch a Rising Star. Uh, this club was mostly comics and it has an incredible lineup of people who got their start there. Seinfeld, Ellen, Billy Crystal, Eddie Murphy, Whoopi Goldberg, so many people, so many amazing careers started there. Cool. I'm with you. I'm going to eat a chocolate. Go for it. Okay. So her first open mic night, she was terrified. She sang Judy Garland's Rockabye Your Baby with a Dixie Melody. And, of course, she brought the house down. Uh, Rick Newman was the club owner, and he was an instant fan, and Pat soon became a fixture at Catch. Just like her childhood years, Pat uh, was soon the only girl in the late-night boys' club. There there were lots of poker games, uh, or she would just hang around with her new friends, like Chevy Chase, John Bellucci, Richard Belzer. 
she says those are some of the happiest times of her life. They were all on the cusp of making it and they became a family, you know, supporting each other and their goals. Uh, but they hadn't made it yet. And while catch was great exposure, Kat, Pat needed cash. So she began taking jobs at weddings, bar mitzvahs, parties, anything, basically. Uh, she met Harry Shapin at one of these gigs. Why is that name so familiar? The Cats in the Cradle. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Harry was doing a play at the time and told her she should audition. She did. She landed the role in a play called The Zinger. It played for a month in Long Island. Some other up-and-comers were also uh, in that. Uh, Christine Lottie and Beverly D'Angelo. Pat really enjoyed expanding her experiences and trying out acting as well. She was beginning to get to the point where she actually needed a real manager. So the next logical step uh, she met a man named Jeff Nicholas. Uh, one day, Jeff set up a meeting for Pat with a songwriter at the songwriter's house on Central Park West. Upon arriving, she says she literally spent the entire hour being chased around the piano. The guy was a total lech and he couldn't keep his hands off her. My God. And we were just talking about Goldie Hawn's um, yeah. autobiography because we both read Goldie Hawn's book. Yeah. And, uh, like, just for fun. And I couldn't believe the story she was telling. Well, I mean, I could believe it yeah. now. But she was talking about that stuff happening back in 2005 when she wrote that book yeah. about things that were happening however many years ago and still oh, happening. Yeah. And, oh, my God, just being chased around. It's crazy. And, yeah, all these women had Dicks to. out. Yeah. Yeah. So Pat exploded into tears and that sort of seemed to snap the guy into the reality of the situation and he finally let her leave. Thank goodness. She was very shaken and she went to uh, catch the club and she immediately told Rick Newman what happened and uh, he was very paternal over her and so she sent he sent some people to her manager to let him know like your services are no longer needed like stay the hell away yeah or in 2018 time's up yes (laughs) exactly um she said i had always been cautious about the people i trusted but after that run-in i came to see just how guarded i needed to be as open and progressive as the music business was supposed to be it was still very much a man's world men held the power and they weren't afraid to wield it in order to get what they wanted So it was a really big blow for her, uh, but it led to Newman stepping up to become her manager. Nice. Yeah. So Newman knew everyone, and being under his wing really helped open doors for Pat uh, in the near future. So in 77, Pat found her stage image in an unconventional way. Uh, She had recently seen a D movie, uh, 1953's Catwomen of the Moon. I'm into it. Yes. Pat really loved campy sci-fi horror, and she thought it would be really fun uh, to call on that for her Halloween costume. So she wore black tights, short black boots, a sheer black top, lots of eyeliner, and completed the outfit with a ray gun. And uh, her and her friends went down to the village. She entered a costume contest at Cafe Figaro on Bleecker Street, and she won. Uh, Then she hauled her ass back up to catch. 
And she performed that night in costumes. And she said, something changed. I don't know if it was because I felt like I was playing a role or I simply removed my personal shell, but I had a newfound bravado, a sexual swagger that wasn't there before. The notes were the same, but they had an attitude to them, an aggression. In the years since, I've returned to that night countless times. And even now, I'm not totally sure what prompted the change inside me. I'd been on the stage for a month and I... And I'd had the spotlight on me for years, but never before had I owned the stage like I did that Halloween. There's something about a good outfit, a good getup, a good thing, you know, like um, sometimes I just don't understand those artists who are on stage in like jeans and a t-shirt. I mean, works for some of them, but it wouldn't work for me. I'd have to, I'd want to be up there in a cape. It really depends, I guess, also on like the type of music you want to play and rock and roll it should be like a, a full performance. And yeah. like that's part of it for sure. A, you know, a persona. Uh, the crowd also, of course, sensed the change and the reception was phenomenal. Uh, Pat decided she was going to wear the outfit without the ray gun for the next night and the same magic happened. So the Pat Bonatar that we know was born. Uh, well, almost. Newman and Pat made some demo tapes and Pat realized there was a problem. Her voice was too well trained for rock and roll. She usually sang other people's songs and because of her wide vocal range, she tended to emulate them too much. So you heard a great vocal rendition, but not Pat's rendition. Right. Uh, She sought out songwriters for some original material, made more demos. They were constantly turned down by labels, but she knew she was on the right track. So she continued playing live. She honed her rock and roll sound. She really wanted to break new territory. She wanted to be Robert Plant. So she wanted that wild wailing voice over intense guitars and Uh, Her magic was in the performance, so Newman decided it was time to showcase her for two nights. Uh, She, of course, killed it, and all the labels who previously rejected her came running for her. So the very next day, she was meeting with labels, and she signed on to Chrysalis. Both Pat and Newman uh, were new to the business, though, and signing that contract without fully understanding what they were signing. Yikes. Yeah, so that's going to pop up in the future (laughs) Uh oh city yes so pat was finally in the studio trying to put together the sound she desperately wanted but the first round of sessions in her words were a disaster the label seemed to be pushing for a more pop rock girly type of sound when she wanted like the pure rock and roll she says she sounded like julie andrews trying to sing rock and roll and (laughs) it was nothing like the sound she had envisioned Um, I thought this was really interesting. She says, I didn't set out to be a solo artist. My dream was to be a singer in a rockin' band like Plant was to Zeppelin or Lou Graham to Foreigner. I wanted partnership like Jagger and Richards had, an unrelenting back and forth between talented musicians. The sound I heard in my head was raucous with hard driving guitars speeding everything forward. So she may not have known how to get that sound, but luckily Mike Chapman came into the picture. He um, previously worked with like the Knack and Blondie. So he understood exactly what Pat wanted and was determined to help her. He suggested some songs which spoke to Pat's soul. So when Pat told him that she was looking for a partnership, he suggested a man he'd heard um, working before with Rick Derringer named Neil Geraldo. 
who Pat would soon nickname Spider. So Spider would become so influential in Pat's life, both career and personal, uh, that I felt I should just take this little chunk out of her book and read it. Yeah, I just snuck a peek at the pictures, so yeah. now I know yeah. just how influential Spider was. But I won't ruin it for you guys as I've ruined it. No, I didn't ruin it for well, myself. Well, this, this p- paragraph, you'll get the picture. Okay, hit me. Without Neil, my career would not have happened. I'm not saying I wouldn't have had any success as the pop princess Chrysalis wanted, but I never would have succeeded to the degree I did, made strides for women, been part of the 80s rock movement, had my face on MTV, won four Grammys, sold millions of records, and still be around 30 years later without the genius of that man. Because I am not responsible for it. We are responsible for it. All of it. From the moment he stepped into the rooms, our lives changed. First music and later romantically and spiritually we were each other's muse it was like we had each been missing a part and when we met we were finally whole connected on a primal level the sexual tension between us and the instant musical compatibility was intoxicating the creativity that flowed was unstoppable and even though i was crazy about him from the moment he walked into the rehearsal hall spider and i did not become a couple at first we had music to make holy shit yes that's awesome you know we've not read a lot of memoirs by men who have said that about any woman it's true it's true even if they felt like that this person was totally integral into like helping them you don't like do you think that's a woman for sure thing to give somebody else credit like that saying it wouldn't it wasn't just me it was us men definitely seem to be more guarded with uh giving credit it's like they don't want to give up any uh credit to someone else even though other people of course are so influential i mean Everyone in your life is, if they're close to you, influences you, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. I think, I think it's uh, amazing that she's giving him as much credit because she knows he deserves it. Why'd she nickname him Spider? Um, apparently, all, all the band uh, sort of had nicknames for each other. It's nothing really special. Uh, one time on tour they saw like a big neon sign that said like something spiders bar or whatever. And she just liked the way like it, it, he, it's spider with a Y S P Y D E R. Mm -hmm. And I guess it just looked cool in lights. And she was like, you're a spider and it stuck. So (laughs) I don't know. It's kind of weird because like spiders are creepy to me at least. So constantly seeing the the name spider, it was like, "Eh." (laughs) I would not nickname like my love spider, but I'm not, Maybe as rock and roll as Pat is. I don't know. Don't you ever say that. <laughs> you are as rock and roll as Pat is in your own well, way. Thank you. So, yes. Now that Pat had met her musical counterpart, they began to audition and form the rest of the band. And they were headed to L.A. to record the album In the Heat of the Night. It was a great experience for Pat. Uh, her musical vision was finally becoming a reality. She says, I had in, it in me all the time, but it was Spider who let it out. So Pat had to stop listening to all her favorite female musicians, who she names like Chrissy Hind, Linda Ronstadt, uh, Streisand, because she was so used to singing covers of those people, and she knew that it wouldn't be her voice coming out of if this in the studio if she was still listening to them. Girl needed to find her own voice. Yes. So they recorded the album for eighty two thousand, I believe, in twenty eight days. It was 
uh, or Pat was really happy with the outcome, though upset that she didn't receive a partial credit for writing Heartbreaker as she had changed so much of the song, but the label wouldn't stand behind her. And that's sort of the beginning of uh, where they kind of didn't stand behind her on many, many occasions. Uh, but she did get two songs of her own on it and Spider got one too called We Live for Love. Uh, which later he said he'd written about Pat, but Pat thinks that's not true since they weren't actually together yet. Um, she was still married to Dennis, though because of meeting Neil, uh, it kind of gave her the final kick in the butt to move along with a divorce, which she did immediately when she returned to New York uh, when the album was done. But Spider was also in a relationship with w- Linda Blair. Hey! Yes. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, that's the Exorcist little girl. Um, she says that recording the album and being that near to him without being able to do anything about it drove her a little crazy, uh, but they both kept it professional. Uh, when they got back to New York City for the live show rehearsals, Neil confided in Pat that Linda had cheated on him, and so that sort of opened the floodgates for them. And after a few weeks, uh, their relationship kind of moved forward, and they finally kissed, and basically from that moment on, they were a couple. All right, so yeah. the exorcist curse did not touch Pat. You're thinking poltergeist. No, the ex- there's there a whole one? like curse in everybody that was involved in the exorcism and Linda Blair and yeah, there I think there's a documentary on it. But Are you sure you're not talking about poltergeist? Yep. With Heather O'Rourke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I I should check that out. Okay. Uh, so in the heat of the night came out in 1979 uh they put a the label put out two songs which did all right on the radio but when they finally released the song that pat had wanted all along which was heartbreaker of course things exploded for her she was in the middle of a tour with david warner but she ended up getting fired because she was suddenly drawing mass crowds and they the crowds weren't very happy when her set ended and then this guy who they didn't come to see came on love when that happens yeah so she suddenly found herself in bigger and bigger arenas and had people recognizing her on the street and had to kind of really learn to adjust to this newfound fame like on the fly uh overall the tour in america and europe was a great success had a lot of fun uh all her family and old singing teachers came to the shows when she was in town and it was just a great experience for her um, when her label found out about her and Spider's relationship, they were they each received a phone call telling them like you can't date. Yes, they cited uh, Nick's and Buckingham as an example of it being a terrible idea and a, and really begged them not to go down that road. They also had this bullshit excuse that it wasn't good for her image, like you know all the other male rock stars before her. Uh, both of them basically told the label, you know fuck off mind your own business pat was also battling the label over her seductive vamp description as they put it in all the press releases she'd created that image but over the course of the tour she began to feel the look sort of was talked about more than the music so she she wanted to tone it down and change this which of course the label was not happy about they also began demanding a second album within nine months of the first so yeah between touring, nonstop press, Pat was under extreme pre- stress. Uh, she had to, through all of that, begin working on her second album. On a break from the tour, 
Uh, her and Spider moved to California together and began working on Crimes of Passion. The first song they cut was Hells for Children. Of all her songs, it's the one Pat is most proud of, and to this day, she always plays it live. Uh, the rest of the recording process was not as easy. The label forced a new producer on them, Keith Olsen, and Pat describes his attitude as very nonchalant and lazy. It was thanks to Spider and the engineer Chris Minto that they got through the process at all. This sort of worked to their advantage, though, in the end, because the more Spider stepped up, the more connected musically they became. Unfortunately, though, he ended up producing most of it, and Chrysalis refused to give him a co-producer credit. So this really upset Pat, especially because Newman, who was still our manager, sided with Chrysalis. So she felt kind of like everyone that was supposed to be on her side was mm -hmm. against her. They're all a bunch of wank jobs. Yeah. In the end, Pat did manage to get Spider payment for the sessions, but not credit. So the, oh, and I should say he got payment out of her royalties. Oh. So Chrysalis did not pay. She was paying him. Yes. So yet another blow was when the label came back with mock-ups of the album cover, completely disregarding her ideas for it. It was really important for her that the band be on the cover with her. Uh, and when she brought it up with Billy Bass, Billy Bass, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name, uh, the head of marketing, he literally said to her with Spider sitting next to her, do you have any idea how stupid and naive you are? No one wants to see the band. This is about you. No one cares about the band. Mm. Yeah. And again, Newman sided with the label. Uh, because of the contract she'd signed, the best Pat could do was compromise. So the cover would stay, but the back photo would be of the whole band. Uh, even that was sort of ruined, though, by the fact that on the day of the shoot, the band was forced to wear clothing from a stylist and not their own clothes. And to this day, the band call uh, th that album, instead of Crimes of Passion, Crimes of Fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the I'd be curious to see that album cover. Oh, yeah. Check it out. Okay. Um, the cherry on top of this whole mess came when Pat picked up a copy of Billboard magazine to find that the label had taken out a full page ad to announce the album, but they'd airbrushed her top off and added cleavage. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. And they put a sign just covering her breast saying the date of the release. No. Yeah. She Those was, sneaky yeah. buggers. She was so upset so upset and of course she, like she immediately called her family and was like i'm not naked like i swear to god like i didn't do this i had nothing to do with this so yeah that was just a huge blow for her <sighs> but the album crimes of passion would become her best-selling album uh over a million copies just in its debut single hit me with your best shot she was nominated for Best Female Rock Performance. It was critical and commercial success, but she had to deal with something unexpected when she began touring. Her favorite song, Hells for Children, was causing a stir. Apparently, people were picketing the shows because of the words hell and children in, like, the same sentence. Yeah. Yeah. This really baffled her uh, because the point of the song is to expose child abuse and to show, you know, a united front with those who had suffered from it. So soon it shifted, though, and Pat began receiving fan mail um, full of letters from people who really related to the song and thanked her for writing it. So 
Pat says she she read every letter and it, like, it really meant a lot to her. So what should have been the happiest time in her career was pretty much the exact opposite thanks to her management. They were now um, trying to fray her relationship with Spider by basically treating him like dirt. Uh, not giving credit where it's due. Uh, sometimes his paychecks would randomly have an issue there. Uh, sometimes all the band members' names would appear on the marquee besides his. It, it was really beginning to put a strain on things. Uh, so, um, but I should say their personal relationship at this point was still good. Like they, they were trying not to let it get to them. Good. Pat was also facing sexism, of course, on a daily basis uh, during all the press junkets. Uh, Pat talks about the obvious and subtle ways in her book. I should mention her book's called Between a Heart and a Rock Place. That's where I'm getting all this information. There's plenty more. It's really good. Uh, So Pat faced it all with a big fuck you, but she would get phone calls from her labels and from Newman telling her, like, you can't talk like the, this so, to these So, like, men. what would they, like, they would just ask her ridiculous questions? Yeah, or... and she mentions, like, um, just tr- treating her with less respect than they would a man, uh, radio disc jockeys um, coming on to her, oh, sit on my lap, you Uh-oh. know, like, oh, you want your record played? Well, come over here, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So eventually, it's no surprise, all the tension from this bullshit did begin running into their relationship, their personal relationship. And uh, so she for the first Grammys that she was nominated for, she ended up attending with Rick Newman. And she ended up winning Best Female Rock Performance. And she was so happy that all their hard work was finally being recognized. And this says a lot. Unfortunately, her family was watching and they did not get to see the moment because at the time, the Grammys did not feel best female rock performance was worthy enough to air on TV. Oh. Yeah. And that, what year was that this? crazy? Oh, that's disgusting. Like 879? Okay, 80s? so oh, the 80s. Yeah. Freak you, the 80s. Um, so yeah, because they would do that with some awards, right? Some of them are aired, some of them are off air, and mm-hmm. that one they were just like, nope. yeah, like yeah, you're in, you're not worthy. Yeah, so frustrating. <sighs> so she was still pushing crimes of passion, and up pops the label again, requesting they begin album three. It was part of her contract that every nine months, if they wanted an album, they could get an album. So. Again, the hi- the label hired Keith Olsen, but they knew that he didn't do the work that Spider did. So this time they actually agreed to give him a co-producing credit and pay him accordingly. But of course, Keith was even more absent this time around. And it just it sucked that he got credit at all because he was not there. Spider did 100% of the work. This album was called Precious Time. Pat was jittery going in. Uh, they'd passed their sophomore album and she loved the process of writing with Spider. Um, and she, over the course of it, she was sort of beginning to feel more confident about her writing skills. She wrote the lyrics to Promises in the Dark about Spider, who then constructed the song 
And she says that this became our process with one of us beginning an idea and giving it to the other one, then stepping away so that the other could pull all the ideas together to complete Love the song. Love that. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. So things are working in the studio, but that didn't mean that, you know, all the work and all the bullshit hadn't taken its toll. So one day in the middle of the tour for this, Spider sat down with Pat and basically told her, like, I love you. I thought I'd be with you forever, but this is just so emotionally draining, like all these people interfering and everything, like I can't do it anymore. So he decided to take a step back from the relationship in order to to keep the band relationship afloat. So in 1981, Pat moved out into her own place and saw Spider on a daily basis and was still madly in love with him, but it was like they were kind of back at the beginning because she, she couldn't get to be with him. Um, did they get any music out of that or? <laughs> well, around this time she did get an amazing opportunity. A new music channel called MTV was oh, debuting. MTV. Yes. Since Crimes of Passion was still at the top in the top 10, they chose their rascals cover. You better run. And they decided to shoot a video, a very simple one, no stylist, no hair and makeup, no story, just the band performing it. So when they got down to the docks, which is where the set was, uh, the director told Pat he was going to turn a fan on and that she should just go. So when Pat was like, what, what does that mean? He was like, just start posing and stuff. So clearly this horrified Pat who laid it down for him, she was like, no, the band is going to play like we always do and you're going to record it. So yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Pat says she was really pissed off the whole time and she really had a bad attitude the entire night of the shoot. And, but if you watch the video, she's like all sneers and attitude. So her whole like, don't fuck with me. That was, that was an, an act. That was just That's what, what she, she was, was feeling. feeling. Yeah. Amazing. And it's a great, like you can, you can feel it. It's a great video. What's it called again? You better run. Okay. You better run. It's a good <laughs> song too. Um, so when MTV launched a year later, that video was the second ever played right after Video Killed the Radio Star. Nice. Yeah. So it that made her the first female ever to be aired on MTV and Spider the first guitarist as there's no guitars in Video Killed the Radio Star. So since MTV didn't have a full rotation of videos yet, Pat's was played constantly and they immediately noticed a difference in their level of fame like she already was having issues with people recognizing her and everything but now like any anonymity that she had was just gone like people everywhere knew who she was so with the success of crimes uh she made chrysalis about 75 million by then i should add all right she was finally in a spot to negotiate renegotiate her contract but newman was still trying to sort of walk the line of pushing for pat but being friendly with the record executives which really doesn't ever work in an artist's favor so pat did get more money and a little more control over song choice and art design but she's Still would have to mutually agree with the label on these points so it basically kept her bound to their opinion mm -hmm. unfortunately uh she wasn't able to get rid of the clause in which she had to produce an album every nine months should they request it so pat really regretted not 
pushing uh, her team to fight harder for her. But being young and inexperienced, she just she didn't know what more she could do at the time. She'd had enough of all the sexist crap, though. Uh, at a meeting to discuss her next music video, when one of the marketing execs leaned over and asked, what are you going to wear while licking his lips? <gasps> she sat silently, gave them all a disgusted stare, and they immediately apologized Pat accepted the apology and then she walked out of the room, kind of letting them know, like, this shit is not going to be tolerated. Oh, my God. Yes. So in the end, they opted for performance videos for Fire and Ice and Promises in the Dark. And for Presser's Time, she shot her first concept video, which was like a rich girl who was a prisoner in her own life, which Pat was sort of feeling at the time mm-hmm. with the label. The tour for Precious Time was a personal disaster as it was the first that her and spider weren't a couple Mm. apparently they fought so much that the other members on the tour dubbed it the hell is for us tour um pat says that the groupies that had always been really respectful of her relationship with neil but now that it was known that he was single girls would fling themselves at him in full force yeah she says one night at the a girl at the front opened her blouse and stood there yelling neil neil like for the entire show and pat was so angry that during heartbreaker she noticed the girl's hands were on the stage and she walked over and stepped on them (gasps) until the song was over (laughs) oh la la yeah but spider was also experiencing jealousy because pat was being hit on left right and center now as well so after the tour uh they had their first true break from work. Pat was happy for some, like, finally some downtime. Uh, and she spent most of her time in L.A. Spider went to New York. He used that time to work as a producer for a few other artists. And he started kind of working on his own songs. They both tried to date other people, but they both were basically miserable. So how finally, can you top that? Like, right? how can you top each right? other? finally spider called pat he confessed like i'm i love you please take me back and uh it had been about a year since their split but pat immediately jumped on a plane there and uh coincidentally it was valentine's day she spent the entire day or they spent the entire day holding each other and talking and by the end of the day they decided that they wanted to get married Mm -hmm. so At the suggestion of their friend, uh, her and Neil flew to Hana, a small island in Hawaii. And on February 20th of 1982, they had their own little private ceremony there. And they loved Hana so much that they would go there almost every year. And they eventually bought property there in the 90s. Cool. She kept the the Benatar name, though. Yeah, professionally, Mm. I guess. Yeah. Um, six days later, the pair had to return to LA for the Grammys, where Pat won for Fire and Ice. It still wasn't televised. Oh. Yep. Uh, she also got to present the award for Best General Album, which went to John and Yoko's Double Fantasy. Yay! Yeah. Just wanted to add that in there. Thank you. Uh, on, next on the agenda was work on her new album, Get Nervous. Thankfully, the label brought back Peter Coleman, the guy who helped create Heartbreaker, so Spider and him worked really well. They really pushed Pat vocally, and she kind of broke out in ways that she never had before. Uh, but she did have um, the usual issues with the label, not getting certain credits, work they were due, things like that. Uh, after Pat shot the artwork as well, um, she 
she really wanted to look maniacal and they had her like in a padded room uh terry ellis at the label uh had a fit when he saw it he basically told pat if he didn't she didn't reshoot the cover he would shelve the album that's how important the the artwork was apparently Mm. yeah uh, he said, I don't know what it is with you American women. You're all so beautiful, but have such problems using your sexuality to your pro- advantage. It's so provincial. Personally, I think it's a big mistake. And Pat, I hope you don't think people are actually coming to your concerts to hear you sing. Yeah, it's infuriating. No comment. So uh, this naturally sent Pat through the roof and... She slapped him. Yay! Yes. She slapped him good. Fuck yeah. Um, she was forced, though, to do a toned-down reshoot with the same concept, just a little more glammed up. Right? They didn't want her looking, like, as maniacal as she did, I guess. Now I want to see both pictures. It's, yeah. You you, you can look them up. Um, she also did a, a video for it. It's a good video. I hope all the listeners are like pausing and, and like watching. a few times to go look at these album covers. I hope and, so. and all this stuff. Um, so for the single Shadows in the Night, they went with the concept of a Rosie the Riveter woman kind of slipping into a dream and actually flying a plane into enemy lines to fight the Nazis. And Pat really loved it, but the band did not. But they went along. Uh, two familiar faces, Bill Paxton and Judge Reinhold, are also in the video. <laughs> Behind the scenes, uh, the tour for Get Nervous was their biggest yet. Pat did all her own hair and makeup. She also loved having her brother Andy on the road. He was now working as her personal assistant. Um, Pat really loves being on the road. Besides that one tour when they were split, she says, like, the road is her happy place. And um, unfortunately, once again, the, the label came calling for the next record while they were in the middle of this tour. Um, they still had that contract. So they decided that they were compromised because Pat was like, no, I cannot do this. So they were going to release a live album with two new songs on it. That was the compromise. So one of the songs was one she'd picked up from a woman named Holly Knight called Love is a Battlefield. Mm. It had originally been written as a ballad, but Spider heard it as this kind of rhythmic anthem. So he got the band together. He gave them sort of random chord changes and the pattern he'd written on a drum machine. And they recorded the parts in like a parking lot. And then Neil brought the band into the studio and was like, don't think too hard. Just kind of play it like the way you were playing out there. And as Pat puts it, Spider's talent for seeing where music was headed was ne- or was headed next was remarkable. He had a gift for anticipating trends and never let anyone stand in the way of that. But guess what? What? The label hated it. Oh, <laughs> Neil and Pat refused to change a thing, though, and over a few weeks, Chrysalis relented. And when Bob Giraldi, uh, the director of the Thriller uh, video, he came on board to do the video. Finally, Chrysalis was like, okay, now we have something. (laughs) So we're not going to try to control the guy who did Thriller. Yes. Um, So shooting the video was pretty nerve wracking for Pat. Because she claims she has two left feet, mm. which I can't see in the video. 
She said she did four hour, 48 hours of intense rehearsal for it, uh, but the dancing scared her so much that she actually had flashbacks to like her first gigs at Catch. Um, all the nerves basically of a first-timer, but the shoot went great, uh, even though she said she couldn't walk for two days after. And of course, it became her biggest single ever. Pat won another Grammy for it. Um, I believe that was her fourth. Uh, this time, they did televise the category, but she wasn't there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and the Live on Earth album stayed on the charts for nearly three years. Cool. Yeah. Uh, her album, Crimes of Passion, at this point, went five times platinum, and Precious Time went double platinum, I believe. So on their downtime, since they finally had this live album to kind of haul them over, um, they were really homebodies but that didn't mean they weren't working they were always sort of writing as much as possible uh tour writing on tour was not something that they were really good at Mm -hmm. they needed a you know a quiet creative space so during this time downtime they worked on what would become tropico their album tropico uh which would be their first record in two years uh the first video they shot for it was painted desert the shoot I know, shockingly, takes place in a desert. (laughs) Um, And Pat really felt awful the entire shoot. It was blistering hot. It was very long hours. And to make matters worse, the clothes she was wearing were all fitting super tight. And she (gasps) really could not understand why. I know why. Yes. So when they went into the editing room, the director was like, are you pregnant? And she was like, uh, no. They've been married two years and they had been trying from the get-go to get pregnant with no luck. And they sort of came to the conclusion that they couldn't. Oh. So she she told them, like, there's no way. But the director pointed to the screen and he said, you see there in your eye a little light. You are with child. (laughs) So I think he was Italian or something. That's cute. Yeah. Um. Pat thought about how sick she'd been and clothes being tight. So she was like, "Mm, maybe I should go to a doctor. And of course, sure enough, she was. They were really overjoyed. And she says making Tropical became one of the best experiences they had. Um, By the We Belong video, uh, Pat was full-blown morning sickness. And she was constantly running off the set to be sick. And then she'd like brush her teeth and reapply her lipstick and then run back out to like shoot the video. Adorable. Yeah. So while the band and those close to them were really happy, Chrysalis was going to say, what does Chrysalis have to say about this? Friggin' what do they think they are? Chrysalis, you butterfly. Right. They (laughs) (laughs) tell you can go to hell. All the children. (laughs) Chrysalis. Yeah. They wanted to keep it a secret. They wanted no photos, no interviews, and certainly no downtime once the baby was born. Uh, To quote Pat, sorry. I told them they could kiss my ass. So their daughter, Haley, was born in February of 1985. Immediately, the label was on her ass about how no one wanted to see some mother rocking out, and it was in her best interest to make everyone forget that she'd ever had it. Um, They were on her about it so much that she actually did begin to worry that her career was in jeopardy. So she did jump back into work only three months after Haley was born. Oh, man. Yeah. Pat recorded Invincible, written by Holly Knight, who did Love is a Battlefield. Uh, when the label demanded not just a single, but a full record, um, Pat really did not feel she had it in her. The title 
of the album, Seven the Hard Way, is basically slang for an impossible bet, which she felt was fitting for the circumstances. They had no new songs and no one and none of the ease that uh, recording Tropico had. She was really exhausted, distracted. The record really suffered for it. And of all her records, it cost the most to make and sold the least. Mm. It would be the first year Pat didn't win a Grammy. She lost to Tina Turner, though. So at least she lost to an amazing She was woman. nominated? Yes. Okay. And they did sit out on tour once again, and she brought Haley along. Luckily for Spider and her, Haley loved being on the road since she was a baby. And I saw a picture of her in that book, and she's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My, my. Uh, they finally did get a proper break f- um, at home after the tour and were able to unwind and, were, you know, be family and work on music the way they preferred. In 1988, they took that material and made the album Wide Awake in Heaven from a, a home studio that Neil had set up. Things at Chrysalis were really going downhill at this point because the president at the company left and he must have really been the glue that held the ship together because basically it, everyone was scrambling, which, of course, was not great for the artists attached to the label. Um, while they did have one big hit off the album, All Fired Up, uh, there wasn't anyone at the label doing press and, you know, making sure it got the proper attention. So it wasn't really selling. The band realized that because of their nonstop schedule over the past few years as well, that they really kind of oversaturated themselves and the audiences weren't using their money to see them because they'd just seen them. Fair you know, enough, yeah. And they were seeing acts they hadn't seen before and stuff. So in the end, they were forced to sort of cut their losses and cancel the rest of the tour, which was a massive blow for Pat. Yeah. One of the reasons she put up with a lot of shit from Chrysalis was because anytime she sort of tried to stand up against them, they would guilt trip her by reminding her, well, you have a staff of 40 relying on you. What are these people going to do if you're not going to go on tour? And uh, she knew these people kind of relied on her for a job. So it always worked on her. Like, I'm, I can't do this to all these people. Uh, but now she had to cancel. So she made sure that the crew all got a severance and that they were cut from any obligation holding them to her so that they could find work elsewhere. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but she was really heartbroken and furious, of course, at the label for letting it come to this. Because of all this and the unfortunate fact that her longtime lawyer, lawyer had recently passed away, uh, Pat hired a new lawyer and sort of began to go over all her contracts and everything to see, you know, where she stood. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but basically she learned that her management hadn't exactly been looking out for her interests. A lot of money was being thrown away. Um, being a mom and kind of looking toward the future more than ever, Pat was like, I, I need to I need to stand up for myself. I need to get this taken care of. So she marched into a meeting and told everyone sort of what's what. And in her words, it was like it, it was like day and night. I'd drawn a line in the sand. I called each and every asshole on the carpet and started heads rolling. People got fired. People got scared. It was a beautiful thing to see. Mm. Of course, it wasn't an easy time for Pat. Um, she had to sever ties with all the people who had been in her life for so long, including Newman, her manager. Yeah. So at uh, she still has really good things to say about him and really thought of him as a friend, but on a business level, he just wasn't what she needed him to be. 
One of the amazing things that came to light from all this, though, uh, her new lawyer discovered that she was no longer contractually bound to Chrysalis because uh, contracts in L.A. run for like personal contracts run for seven years and they passed that mark. So she officially was a free woman. Good. Yes. They were going to go to Chrysalis and discuss this new discovery. Um, she also checked out. Or I should say, Chrysalis was headed into the gutter at this point. And when she went to Chrysalis to kind of renegotiate or see what was up with this contract ending, she discovered that they had kind of sold at least 50% of the company to EMI. So EMI was now like, actually, we own you. But she was like, oh, actually, you don't like look at look at my contract. Good. Yeah. So she now had different people that she had to deal with. And her lawyer was incredible. She got also got a new manager, Danny Goldberg, who kind of or who worked for um, Almond Brothers, Nirvana, Bonnie Rayet. And she just she as a free woman she just thought i'm gonna lay it out i'm gonna tell everyone what i want and Mm -hmm. then see where it goes good so if they wanted to make a deal pat would have 100 percent control over the content she made with no involvement on their part um and they agreed shockingly she's they said we will never tell you how to make a record we're businessmen like we you make it we sell it so in addition to that Uh, She had options for more albums if both parties agreed on no demands on when they would be produced. And for this new album, as well as going forward, they were going to increase the advance and royalty rate. And going forward, she would own 100% of the publishing. Great. Yeah. Also, retroactively and forward, she got an increased royalty rate to make up for her previous lawyer never negotiating that. Good. Basically, it was a huge success for Pat, especially after so many turbulent years with Chrysalis. Since she could work at her own ease now, this was exactly what she did. She got involved with other projects. Uh, She was really passionate about uh, the one that she did with Marlo Thomas, which was Free to Be, which teaches kids essential values through music. I checked out on YouTube. There's a song called Jimmy Says that she did for that, which is basically about like peer pressure. And she also recorded the hymn Tell Me Why for Disney for their For Our Children uh, album that benefit uh, Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Wonderful. Yeah. So she was really enjoying this period of downtime so much that she kind of was like, maybe I don't want to make music anymore. Maybe I don't want to tour. But in 1990, Neil had this idea of making a blues album. She really kind of scoffed at the idea at first, but Neil was really persistent. And with their new contract, they could do whatever they wanted. Yeah, and we all know he's a genius. Yeah, so, so she trust re- him exactly. She recorded her ninth album, and it was a very joyous experience for the band. And they went out on this really small tour. They called it an evening with Pat Benatar because they focused on these like swing and blues songs, and she didn't really do any of her other albums. So. They didn't want people kind of be like, love is a battlefield. Yeah. You know? And uh, the album, I should say, was called True Love. And it really inspired them and 
sort of got them into the new phase of their musical life together. Their next album was Gravity's Rainbow, released two years later in 93. During the cover shoot, Pat experienced something very familiar. Her clothes were tight. <laughs> so uh, she saw the uh, in her eye when she looked at the... Yeah. So, yeah, she was pregnant again. Uh, again, she'd been trying ever since her first daughter. But... Uh, she didn't think that she was gonna and she did have she lost a baby in the, in between there so yeah she didn't think they were ever gonna have another one but uh they did and they named her hana after the place they got married oh in Hawaii. sweet yeah and she was born in 94 and she did tour while pregnant uh and it was really rough for her but she got through it um but she kind of decided this was the time to sever ties with emi um because i guess emi didn't really appreciate her getting pregnant again so they parted ways and that's the sound of me rolling my eyes yeah uh so yeah pat was free and she did have a say in how she wanted to move forward and when she happened to come across an article about annie defranco and how she created her own label so that she could sort of finance produce and distribute her own records pat was so inspired she wanted to do the same so her and neil did some research they signed up with this really small indie label called cmc and they just wanted to kind of like learn what it takes to to run your own small label and they released an album called Enamorada in 1997. And of course, it didn't sell as many records as her previous work. But in the end, it was the album they made the most money off of simply because they owned so much more of the rights oh, to wow. it. Yeah. She did tour the album. Unfortunately, she booked the tour before she got a phone call from Sarah McLaughlin being like, hey, I have this new tour called oh. Lilith Fair. Yeah. But she did have two dates available. And she was incredibly happy and excited to be a part of it. We're rounding up here. So forgive me. This is a pretty big paragraph. But I thought it was kind of a perfect way to sum up uh, the importance of Pat. And all right. Yeah. She says, standing up there with all those successful, capable young women made me think of all the early years when every day was a fight just to be a woman in a man's world of rock and roll. I thought back to all the radio promoters and record men, the guys who'd said things just to try to make me feel uncomfortable, and the guys who told me I didn't know what I was talking about. I thought about wearing baggy clothes to hide my round pregnant body and having the program directors at the radio stations lick their lips as they asked me to take a seat on their laps. I thought about the extra five layers of skin I had to grow just to be standing on that stage two decades later after that lunatic songwriter chased me around a piano. While the times had changed, I knew that none of these problems had gone away completely. I knew all those women, both on stage and in the crowd, had to contend with these issues in one way or another, usually on a daily basis. But the most important thing was that we all kept going. We'd be damned if we were going to let bullshit get in the way of our vision of our future, our plan for life. I'd spent my entire career 
being the only female in a sea of guys. Now I was surrounded by women who, like me, couldn't resist the call to perform. I watched them up there, confident and in control, seeing all those young women enjoying each other's musical talent, each supporting each other, warmed my heart. Women like Sarah McLaughlin, Paula Cole, Jill, Meredith Brooks, and the Indigo Girls were playing their music and interacting with each other, being treated with respect, improving once and for all, an all-female lineup could sell out festivals. It made me so proud to know, without even realizing what I was fighting for, I've been on the front lines on behalf of young women, strong women, like the ones I witnessed on stage those nights. I'd never been prouder to be part of a group of women who'd forged a path where none had been before, so that future generations of women could walk unencumbered in their pursuit of dreams. Amazing. Yes. And like, what a way to wrap up the first episode of the year. Yes. It's so apropos. It's so perfect. It's so fitting. And yeah. um, I love that we kind of get to be in on this and ah. hear about these women that have written these things and been saying these things for so long. And finally, people are listening and they're paying yeah. attention. And it's so true. Amazing. Um, I wanted to say I got to see Pat and Neil a couple years ago at Massey Hall. Yeah. It was amazing. Pat has actually been on tour for some part of the year since 1995. She makes sure she tours every year. And uh, some awesome people she's toured with, I just want to say, include Fleetwood Mac, Blondie, Steve Miller, Journey, Cheap Trick, Eric Burdon, and Cher. Cool. Yeah. And we know that they have two daughters. Mm -hmm. I looked them up. Uh, Hilly and Hannah are definitely not your rock and roll girls. Mm-hmm. They're a little more uh, L.A. Kardashian. Um, I'm not really sure what Haley does. I know she used to sing. She actually opened. She had a pop group, and she opened for Pat a few times. And I know Hannah online is like a social media influencer. That's oh, what it says. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I found a photo of one of them wearing a shirt that said, I'm with the pop band, which cute. I thought was cute. And... Uh, yeah, um, I did find a nice video of Hannah on YouTube kind of discussing her past with bullying. So I guess she's sort of like trying to promote awareness of that. And uh, yeah. Cool. Great. Yeah. Thank you for a really, in, like, really interesting, fantastic episode. I have so much. Not that I didn't have respect for Pat Benatar before, but I just didn't know yeah. about her. I know. So, she's so been through really a lot. She's definitely and, a trailblazer. Yeah. And it's so great that she gives credit to Neil. You know, she knows it's a partnership just like she wanted. And they're each other's muses, which is so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pat and Spider, Shanti and Lynx. Yeah. We're each other's muses. Exactly. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for your patience. And we're so happy to be back. And we're so happy that you're back. And we have a lot of great episodes planned for you in the new year. And a lot of awesome things that are going to be happening this year. So stick with us. 2018. Mm -hmm. It's going to be awesome. As always, you can find us online on Instagram at Muses and Stuff Podcast. Same thing on Facebook and Twitter at Shanti and Links. Although we've been kind of quiet over there too. Yes. We've been hibernating. Yeah. It's the winter time. It's cold here. Taking a break. We'll get back on it. Yeah. It's there, you know, like no troubles. No. No worries. It's all good. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine. 
is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.